Welcome to Dialogues with the Past, a High Point University history podcast dedicated to delving into the past and learning from historical experts from around the world. I am Mac Mullins, a history major and enthusiast. Today I am joined by High Point University's professor in history who specializes in Napoleonic history, Dr. Frederick C. Schneid. It's a pleasure to have you here, Dr. Schneid. Pleasure to be here, Mac. So, In the year 1804, Napoleon Bonaparte, a Corsican general who rose to prominence following several successful military campaigns underneath the revolutionary French Republic, crowned himself Emperor of the French. Following being crowned, the emperor almost immediately was engaged in a swift campaign by the Austrian and Russian empires, which would culminate in their defeat following Napoleon's famous victory, the Battle of Austerlitz. Only a year later, however, Napoleon would find himself once again at war, this time with the North German Kingdom of Prussia. However, following the twin battles of jena Auerstedt, what Napoleon believed would be a quick and speedy campaign turned into a drawn-out one, as the remnants of Prussia would retreat into their territorial possessions in modern-day Poland. Worst of all, winter was approaching, and Napoleon and his Grand Armée were now 900 miles from Paris, Today we will be discussing how Napoleon, despite being isolated from France and being stationed in hostile territory, was able to supply, maintain, and care for his troops, a gargantuan task that can be characterized as a masterwork in military logistics. Now, Dr. Schneid, would you begin by illuminating me to exactly how a typical army was supplied during the years preceding Napoleon's empire? Right. Uh... Well, so, Mac, uh, most armies in the 18th century uh, and earlier were supplied by uh, wagon trains, uh, supply columns coming from magazines. Magazines were uh, supply depots in cities or fortress cities and towns. And so you'd have these long, winding supply trains that often bogged down armies and their line of march uh, and the speed in which they could move. Uh, French revolutionary armies uh, in the 1790s uh, still uh, relied upon supply columns but often broke from these columns by uh, living off the land or supplementing their supplies uh, by uh, foraging in the countryside. Uh, Napoleon's armies uh, still retain supply columns uh, that were fed by magazines, but he develops a system uh, that allows him to move his armies faster and not to be tied down by these columns uh, because they were not always uh, necessary for his ability to maneuver his forces. And along with that, how exactly were uh, troops raised during uh, this time? In, uh, there are two, two, two ways to answer the question. There's, there's the, uh, the way the French raised armies, and then there's the way everyone else raised armies. Uh, and so everyone else raised armies in very much a, a standard 18th century style of recruitment, uh, of offering bounties for people to enlist. Sometimes they would have press gangs. Certainly the Royal Navy in Britain had press gangs, but other countries for their armies had press gangs to force people in uh, to the army, and they would have to serve a varying number of years. In the Russian army, uh, you serve 25 years, so it was almost a life sentence. Uh, In the Austrian army, in the Prussian army, it was also 15, 20-year long time. Uh, And these these times shortened by uh, the Napoleonic Wars. But uh, for the French, beginning with the revolution, uh, they carried out, they introduced the first national conscription system, what we would know more commonly as the draft. And then beginning in 1797, you have an annual draft that remains effective in France through the Napoleonic Wars. And so that's how the armies are fed uh, uh, and how they're maintained through a draft system. 
So you do note in your papers that uh, his army in Poland was roughly the size of 250,000 men. How exactly was he able to get these men from France to Poland during this time? The, uh, so uh, Germany was uh, one of the most uh, well-developed in terms of road infrastructure. And so the ability to march from France across the, across the Germanies, what had, uh, remember it's, uh, it's not a united Germany, but it's a, a, just before 1806 is the Holy Roman Empire, after 1806 is the Confederation of the Rhine. These are independent German states, but they have uh, very good infrastructure and road networks. And so the French army marched from France uh, across the Rhine into, uh, through Germany and into Poland where the infrastructure was not as good. While there were roads between the cities and towns, uh, these were not what we call metalled roads, meaning uh, well-paved, not in a modern sense, but paved for the 18th century, ni- early 19th century sense. And so they marched uh, as part of the campaign against Prussia in 1806, which continued uh, into Prussian Poland uh, by the time we get to the end of November Uh, into December uh, 1806. And so how exactly did Napoleon end up in Poland? Well, uh, so when the French are, well, I I should start back a little bit. Uh, Napoleon uh, had originally been in an alliance with the Kingdom of Prussia uh, from January uh, 1806. Uh, But then uh, in the summer of 1806, they had a significant disagreement over the shape of a new Germany, Uh, which was being forged in the wake of his victory at Austerlitz over the Austrians. And this disagreement led to arguments over who would control or have influence over which territories uh, informally. Uh, And Napoleon, who had uh, pledged to give Prussia Hanover, which had belonged to the British, and did transfer that territory to Prussia, uh, reneged uh, without telling the, the Prussians, and even though the Prussians were occupying Hanover, and offered it back to the British in the summer of 1806. And that became sort of the final straw in that relationship. And so Prussia will mobilize for war and then go to war with France uh, at the beginning of October. Napoleon marches his army uh, into Germany, or part of it is already in southern Germany, and he engages, as you mentioned in the introduction, in two climactic battles, the Battle of Jena, which he fights with the main French army, and the Battle of Auerstadt, which was fought by his, one of his marshals, Louis-Nicolas Davout. And on the same day, 13 miles apart, uh, they, uh, he and Davout win these dramatic victories, defeat the Prussian army, pursue it until it's destroyed, but the king of Prussia and the remnants of his army retreat into Prussian Poland, where the Russians now arrive as allies, although a bit too late. So uh, we do know that Napoleon had defeated the Russians in the Battle of Austerlitz just a year before. So why exactly did Russia eventually join the Prussians in this campaign? After Austerlitz, uh, there was a, a ceasefire, an armistice with the Russians, who did withdraw back into Russia. Then there were peace negotiations between France and Russia in which a draft treaty was agreed to by the diplomats negotiating. Uh, However, the Tsar of Russia uh, ultimately rejects the treaty when it's presented to him, and therefore there is still technically a state of war that exists between Russia and France at the time of the war with Prussia. And so it's at this time that the Tsar of Russia, Alexander I, decides to continue this war by sending forces into Poland uh, to support the Prussians and also to contend with Napoleon. So now we find ourselves in the middle of Poland uh, and uh, a campaign in the middle of winter, especially in a place such as Poland, uh, 
we know countless times throughout history, it can be quite disastrous. So what issues would Napoleon's army have been facing during these months? The, uh, the French army had good supplies through Germany. There were a number of allied Ger- French allied states in Germany, and so they did have good supply bases, and they were supplied by their allies. But once in Poland, uh, this is problematic. Um, while there's a, a very good population and it's good agricultural uh, uh, land, the, uh, in winter, of course, uh, you have the fall harvests, and you and a lot of this food had been collected or sold or or, or consumed by the Prussian army, certainly the Russians as well. Um, and uh, the problem is that the French have to navigate this poor infrastructure in Poland, marching on roads. So one of Napoleon's marshals, Marshal Lan, comments to Napoleon in a letter. Uh, that uh, the land in Poland that he's marching through is more barren than the Sinai. And Marshal Lan, who was only a general in 1799, had marched through the Sinai in Napoleon's Egyptian campaign. So can you imagine how desolate it must have been to be in Poland and compare it to the Sinai Desert? Uh, And this is a problem. How do you supply the army? And it has to be supplied locally. You can't supply hundreds of miles from France. Uh, You have to be able to supply from Germany and even better to be able to supply from Poland itself. So given that this is almost uh, something that requires an immediate reaction, how exactly did Napoleon react to this? And did he take inspiration from any figures in history? We do know that he's an avid reader that loves, you know, reading about Julius Caesar and the likes. So there, there are a number of, of military campaigns in which logistics plays an important role. The uh, French army operated on a system in which there were um, supply depots, as I mentioned, but they'd also there was also this historical um, this historical precedent in which you could forward deploy supplies in territory you're marching through that is um, not controlled by the enemy, uh, and that you would send uh, mil- uh, intendants or commissaires who are your supply officers ahead of the army to set up these supplies and make them available so that when the army arrives, the supplies are available. And this is called ATOP. Uh, and uh, there was a very famous incident in the War of Spanish Succession about 100 years earlier in which the Duke of Marlborough, a very famous British military commander, uh, marched from the Netherlands to Bavaria, in other words, across Germany to South Germany, uh, without supply columns, uh, which was the tradition, because he was able to, uh, through the establishment of a top, set up forward de- supplies in friendly territories that his army would march through. Um, so that that was something that was available, certainly to Napoleon in Germany. In Poland, it only became available once the Russian army withdrew, particularly from Warsaw, which they had occupied and would remain in occupation till the end of December 1806. So uh, let's move a little bit on to uh, what exactly were the essential supplies that were needed to to keep this army moving? Uh, First and foremost, food. Uh, So grain uh, and uh, uh, water, but a um, special type of water that most armies used called eau de vie, and this was water that was, fo- they call it fortified, but it had a, a certain percentage of alcohol in it. Not enough to get you drunk, but enough to kill whatever bacteria or nasties were in the water. So these things had to be acquired. Uh, also, alcohol, uh, such as wine, was quite common. could be supplemented by beer or other uh, liquors, although these were seen as uh, ration treats for the soldiers because otherwise you'd have uh, a disorderly drunken mess, which sometimes off, you know, did happen. 
So those things, uh, sustenance, the supplies, uh, the food, uh, the drink, these things are needed right away. So also beef, if possible, uh, um, pork, if possible, whatever type of meat or protein could be acquired in, in, in significant quantities to supplement the grain uh, was absolutely necessary. And so this becomes a bit more problematic because the amount of grain, the amount of cattle, the amount of sheep, the amount of uh, drink is, again, as you mentioned, the, Napoleon has uh, about 250,000 soldiers operating in Poland by, um, let's say, uh, as effective soldiers somewhere around January to March 1807. Uh, and so that's a lot of grain and you need a lot of cattle and you need a lot of alcohol and a lot of water. Uh, this is not something you could go to the local you know, grocer and, and, and purchase. And so how exactly did they get this grain, alcohol, et cetera? Initially, they went for the low-hanging fruit, which was seizing Prussian army depots, which, which they did do. But um, once you get out into uh, Prussian Poland, the number of depots and, and, and storage facilities is few and far between. So they have to impose uh, levies on local towns and regions uh, and require them to provide supply. And uh, certainly when they get into Warsaw by the end of December, uh, and uh, into January and thereafter, they expect the um, Polish provisional government that Napoleon sets up. Uh, these are Polish nobles who are supportive of Napoleon and the Warsaw Municip Municipal Authority to provide supplies when, when requested. Napoleon also has um, a number of expatriate Poles who had fled Poland during the partition wars in the 1790s and even earlier, and they return as French officers and French administrators, who are to, and they are to be liaisons with the Polish population and the Polish nobility and municipal government so that they can, uh, the French army can, uh, commissioners can say to these Polish intermediaries, the army needs X amount of grain, X amount of wine, X amount of this and that. You now go speak to the authorities in these regions and you take care of it for us. And that's what was done. So along with this, clothing was also a very essential part uh, of, you know, the well-being of an army. And so with countless miles marched through Prussian Poland and, and you know, skirmishes tearing holes in uniforms, how did Napoleon ensure his army had access to clothing and shoes? There were two ways in which this was done. One was the traditional way in which all armies uh, did, uh, and that is they tried to mend their own clothes. And so having a, having a tailor or a number of tailors uh, that were in the various units uh, was very effective. Soldiers themselves, especially if they were drawn from the peasantry, which the majority were, would know how to basically sew up holes in their, in their clothing. Uh, but it became much more problematic with shoes, uh, which because you know, the shoes are not something that that uh, you know peasants or uh, would know how to deal with, and so you would hope to have cobblers or shoemakers among those, or even apprentices who were cobblers and shoemakers, and now in the army to help repair. But otherwise, uh, the other second way was to acquire it from the various cities and towns, and to require their tailors to acquire their textile. Uh, factories, and by factory, this is pre-industrial. So these are hand looms. These are not steam-powered looms yet. Uh, so the, the you have, uh, particularly in parts of Prussia uh, called Silesia, you do have in Warsaw, uh, in Torn, and Posen, you do have textile mills, uh, and they are asked to produce for the army, um, particularly winter coats because it was winter, uh, or other types of clothing, uh, so that they could be used as replacements. Shoes were the biggest problem because shoes are made by hand still at this time. And so you have to have shoemakers producing shoes in large quantities. And by large quantities, 
uh, in 1806, from October 1806 to October 1807, the French army uh, purchased and received a half million pairs of shoes. So you think about in a pre-industrial age how much labor was required to produce that over the course of 12 months. That, uh, that is quite crazy. And, and uh, especially um, along with that, uh, I'd like to ask, uh, because there was, you know, were different factories, and, um, as you said, pre-industrial factories being used to uh, ensure the production of these clo- this clothing, uh, could you talk a little bit more about the dyes that were used to dye these uniforms? Yeah. Uh, the French are, you know, the, the dyes that are used uh, depends on the color of the uniform, right? Because um, all of these, uh, all of these fibers are, are wool largely, uh, and wool's going to be white or a dirty white, uh, and so the cheapest, in fact, the cheapest color uh, to produce for a uniform is white because you can then bleach it, uh, and it doesn't take a lot of, it doesn't require any dye. Uh, however, um, dyes were employed to uh, establish national colors of uniform, right? The British famously had red, which was the most expensive. Uh, they required indigo. Uh, and similarly, the French had blue, uh, a, a special French blue. But the ac- ability to acquire uh, these kind of dyes was problematic because many of them were acquired overseas. And when Napoleon's at war after 1803, he's at war with the British. And so that makes the acquisition of dyes problematic. So what you have is while those dyes could be acquired and other substitutes could be acquired in France for French military uniforms, you have a problem of colors of uniforms. And when we watch movies or we look at uniform books, these are what the uh, uniforms are supposed to look like in the best of all possible worlds. But the reality is that there was not even a single template that was carried with the army to show tailors or textile factories the measurements and the cut of the uniform. They have to go by looking at a soldier wearing the uniform and then figure it out. And then the color they have to match as best as possible. So the reality is that a French army is, or any army after you know a month or two of campaigning is going to look messy, dirty. Their uniforms, uh, if they're on extended campaign as the French were, are not going to be evenly colored, especially even within the own regiment, let alone the whole army. And it's much different than what we see, let's say, in our idealized version. But when we think of World War II or even World War One and the uniforms, they're dirty, but they all have similar colors, and that's because you're in the industrial age. And so that can be dealt with. But in a pre-industrial age or a proto-industrial age, uh, these are things that, that give you a sense of what that must have looked like uh, as opposed to what we perceive that they look like. Fascinating. A wide variety of blue, I can yes, imagine. Yes, And so probably not bl- all blue at all. Sometimes I'm sure that they had white or other types of colors. Wow. Um, so uh, now that we've discussed a little bit about the items that, that were necessary for forming the army, you did talk touch on how uh, we could acquire the how Napoleon's army could acquire these goods, but along with that, how who was in charge of ensuring that these essentials were transported and delivered to their respective places? Great question. Uh, throughout military history, particularly since uh, what we would call the uh, early modern period, from let's say the fifteen hundreds on. Uh, there were military contractors, army suppliers. Uh, and army supplying wasn't, wasn't a profession per se, but these were merchants who had large networks, regional networks, uh, or networks that could reach across state lines and state borders. Uh, and these commercial networks were employed to provide army uh, supplies. 
so that you could move a, send somebody you know three cities ahead or in another country and say I need X amount to be produced. So you have army suppliers, but it's a very very risky venture uh, because um, most army suppliers are not paid up front. They were paid uh, they ha- they were paid on credit by the state, assuming the state would win or lose the war that they would pay. Uh, and this was uh, not guaranteed, and many army suppliers went out of business. So you have an army contractor who would be a, a well-off or well-known merchant in a particular region, and then they would subcontract to other merchants to acquire various goods. So if you need um, if you need cattle, you would subcontract to a cattle merchant. If you needed wine or alcohol, or uh, you would you would subcontract there for clothing, the same thing. And so you have. If you think of the army contractor, the lo- the larger entity, the individual or the company that's the army contractor, they are like the general contractor. And then you have subcontractors who provide for the army. And so those merchants who had the best commercial contacts could be the most efficient in developing the supply system and the most effective. And, and uh, this is something uh, – this is not part of the military system. This was, uh, again uh, – this was contracted out to private suppliers, and that was standard. So we do know that uh, preceding uh, Napoleon's uh, invasion into Poland, uh, Poland had previously been partitioned up, and there had been a series of wars that had occurred prior, meaning that there likely was a plethora of military contractors in the area. So were these typically Poles, uh, or they, f- or were they from outside of the region? In Poland, uh, they are Poles, uh, and uh, in, and in Germany, they would be German as the general contractors. Uh, but then it depended on how far out and how distant the contracting would would be. But in Poland, what Napo- uh, what we find is that the you know the Kingdom of Poland was very very large and will ultimately be broken up between the Prussians, the Austrians, and Russians. So you have a Prussian Poland, a Russian Poland, and an Austrian Poland. And um, before the the partitions, you have merchants and merchant families who establish these trading houses, these commercial houses, throughout Poland. But then once you have these partitions, these families are no longer in the same kingdom, but you have cousins who are running... Uh, you know the the family the you know the family's uh, commercial house in let's say what would be Lemberg or today Lviv uh, is now Austrian Poland and you have another who was in Warsaw that would be Prussian Poland and another one who would be let's say in Vilna which would be Russian you know, Poland and so you have all of these family members running their houses after the partition you still have your contacts because they're family members and they're running the different divisions of the family commerce but in different countries and so. When Napoleon comes to Poland, uh, the French army uh, is approached by these army contractors uh, and and offered up this opportunity. Um, one of the, not the only one, but one of the major contracting sources of contracting were Polish Jewish army uh, co- uh, contractors. They had been um, the the uh, they had been contractors in the Polish army in, uh, in the first War of Partition and even in the Second War of Partition. One of them, in fact, was the uh, had the monopoly of army supply for the Kingdom of Prussia after the division, uh, and this is the family that ends up supplying significantly the French Imperial Army under Napoleon in 1806-1807 against the Russians. Uh, and so they had um, contracts uh, and long-standing connections throughout Poland, various parts of Poland, and also in Austrian Poland too. Wow. So now that we know that the French army was 
pretty well supplied. Do we have any idea what the state of the opposing Russian army was like? It's a great question. And the Russian army uh, was used to moving over vast distances because Russia itself is over vast distances. Uh, the Russian army uh, was uh, uh, very much in a, uh, a relatively decent state of supply, particularly in regards to ammunition. Uh, they had been used to privation and long marches. So the Russian army was not, and they were operating closer to home, closer to supply bases in t- cities and towns. So the Russian army was not in as bad a shape uh, in 1807 in terms of its supply as the French initially were in December 1806 uh, when they first arrived in Prussian Poland. So along with that, it is important to note that they are marching through Prussian Poland. Correct. Uh, so what, were there any Prussian forces that were still remaining in the area? Yes, uh, there, the Prussians uh, still had garrisons in the city of the fortress city of Danzig, what's today called Gdansk on the coast, and that was a commercial center, so they, and they, they had supplies coming in from the British in the Baltic Sea. Uh, as well as the Russians could provide. So Danzig, or Gdansk today, was under siege by the French and would remain under siege throughout much of the winter and into the spring of 1807, held by a a, a stalwart Prussian garrison. You have Königsberg, uh, which is today, I think, Talinin, which is part of actually Russia today. Uh, and But Königsberg was the eastern capital of the Kingdom of Prussia. Königsberg means king city or kingstown. And that's where the king of Prussia, Frederick William III, retreated and stayed during the second phase of the war. Uh, and there was a Prussian garrison there. Now, there was a remnant of about fifteen to 18,000 Prussian soldiers in a field army that did operate in coordination with the Russians uh, through 1807. And they're at the Battle of Eilau in 1807. And then they go to Königsberg to sort of help in the defense by, the, uh, by March, April 1807. So were there any conflicts between the two opposing sides uh, throughout the winter, such as in December or January? You mean between the French, the Prussians, and the Russians? Uh, yeah, the yes. French, Prussians, and Russians. Yes, uh, there was. Uh, the French, uh, when they arrive in, at the end of December in Warsaw, they're skirmishing with the Russians. Uh, there are a couple of small battles outside. Uh, well, they're not terribly small, but there, there are battles uh, with, with the Russians outside of Warsaw at the end of December and beginning of January 1807. Um, and as the Russians withdraw from Warsaw, there uh, and it culminates. Uh, the Russians shift their operations. They were originally operating in the Warsaw area, and then when Napoleon arrives in Warsaw with the bulk of the French army, they retreat north toward, moving towards Königsberg, and uh, end up in uh, uh, one of the bloodiest battles of the Napoleonic Wars to that date, and that was the Battle of Eylau, fought, fought uh, February seventh, eighteen o seven, in which uh, roughly twenty five thousand. Uh, French and Russian soldiers, respectively, are killed or wounded in, the, in that battle. Um, and that's, that was the bloodiest uh, to date. So we have a major battle in, in Poland, in Prussian Poland at that time, uh, through the winter 1807. And then after that, uh, the, uh, both armies go into winter quarters. They sit back, they resupply, they, there's reinforcement. And when the campaign begins again in May 1807, it will culminate on uh, June 14th, 1807, the Battle of Friedland, also in Prussian Poland, and that is a decisive victory for Napoleon. He destroys the Russian army, and it forces the Tsar to finally come to an agreement, a written agreement, a signed agreement with Napoleon, ending the war. So what exactly was the outcome of that agreement? So the Treaty of Tilsit, uh, signed in July 1807, um, essentially uh, recognizes Napoleon's conquests and domination of 
Western and Central Europe. When he meets Tsar Alexander on a raft that was anchored in the Yemen River, the Yemen was the border between Prussia and Russia, uh, Napoleon embraces Tsar Alexander and says, you are the emperor of the East and I now the emperor of the West. And the Treaty of Tilsit recognizes essentially Napoleon's dominance over Western, Central, and Eastern Europe. Uh, and this is something that the Tsar does not want to do, but his armies have been beaten and he has essentially no choice. And Napoleon offers up to the Tsar um, a, not only a treaty of friendship and cooperation, a commercial uh, agreement as well. Uh, he demands that the Tsar and Russia abide by the continental blockade, preventing a trade between Russia and Britain, just as the European continent will be prohibited in trade under the continental system with Britain. He tries to get the Tsar to support a wild expedition to India, which had just been conquered a few years earlier by the British and wants to send a, a French force with a you know large Russian force through Central Asia, which had yet to really be conquered by the Russians. Um, so Napoleon is, is uh, in Tilsit, uh, uh, gets the Russians to recognize and affirm his conquests through 1807, but then seems unrestrained in his ambitions. So along with this, uh, going back to his logistics, would you say that uh, his reforms here and his innovation to get these supplies to his troops, was this one of the defining factors to, um, to his ultimate victory over the Russians? Uh, I'd say that it allows the French army to operate uh, as they had been operating in more fertile regions of Europe, to operate in an infertile time of winter uh, and uh, at least achieve a draw at Eilau and then camp and remain in, in bleak Prussian Poland, rearm, resupply, and launch a second campaign. So it's certainly a significant part of Napoleon's ability to continue to wage war, but ultimately it's Napoleon's strategic genius that allows him to pull a victory out. So ultimately, did Napoleon's logistical innovations during this campaign have any impact on future military minds? The, the system that is established on the fly in 1806-1807 uh, will become the French logistical system, and it will be employed thereafter uh, uh, through the rest of the Napoleonic Wars. Um, and you know, I, I should observe, Mac, one of the interesting things, though, is while it's created on the fly, much of Napoleon's successes were done on the fly. They were done relatively quickly where, where you had to have innovation, but in a very short period of time, uh, working with existing systems, improving on them to develop you know, these kinds of innovation. But the one campaign that Napoleon has the luxury of time and the luxury of resources to prepare for is the one which he, in which he fails the greatest, and that is the Russian campaign of 1812. Fascinating. Uh, just, you know, really showcases the military genius of the emperor. So despite being 900 miles from Paris and with enemies uh, right in front of him, Napoleon Bonaparte, through logistical genius, was capable of feeding, clothing, and maintaining his army through quickly put together yet meticulous logistical reform. So thank you, Dr. Frederick C. Schneid, and thank you, thank you for tuning into Dialogues with the Past, a High Point University history podcast. Please tune in for a new episode. 